0: Hello, my name is Maywa and welcome to Maiwa and Conversation, a podcast that aims to explore the unique perspectives of Africans. This season, I have conversations with Nigerians that are making an impact by disrupting societal and cultural norms, fighting against injustices, creating new paths and platforms, and who are showing that there are in fact limitless possibilities on the continent. On this episode, I'm talking to Emmanuel Iduma, a writer, editor, publisher, and art critic. Emanuel is the co-founder of the critically acclaimed literary journal, Sarabar Magazine. He's the author of two books, A Stranger's Pose, which he describes as a travel book, and The Sound of Things to Come, a novel. Emanuel's interests span a range of disciplines, from history to literature and art, and his writing reflects this. He has written essays featured in publications like the New York Review of Books, Arts in America... British Journal of Photography, Aperture and Brooklyn Rail. Aside from his writing, Emmanuel has taken part in numerous projects rooted in art. He was associate curator in the first ever Nigerian Pavilion at the Venice Biennale and has taken part in road trips across Africa as a part of various cultural projects. Thank you for joining me today, Emmanuel.
1: Uh, Thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: So for our conversation today, I want to talk about photography and your experience traveling around Africa, also your approach to archives and what you think the role of African intellectuals, writers, and artists is in our modern modern world. I find your focus on photography really interesting, and I love how photographs are incorporated into your travelogue, A Stranger's Pose. On one hand, photography was used by colonial powers to reinforce a very racist ideology and epistemology. But on the other hand, photography is continuously used by Africans to disrupt and document. Why is photography such an important art form for you and how has it informed your writing?
1: That's an important question because I I do think that in some way, A lot of the work I have been doing the the last couple of years can be crystallized in relation to my involvement or my interest in in photography. Um, So I sort of got into photography as a writer, intent on learning the power of keen observation in the sense that I became interested in photographs precisely because I could in some way describe them. And I'm just saying that now I realize that that might make it seem like I'm only interested in, say, documentary photography or portraiture, all of that. But I'm interested in photography writ large. But as I say, what really interests me about photography is the fact that I'm looking closely and that by writing about photography, incorporating it into my text, even, you know, teaching photographers how to walk With literature, all of this has helped me develop keen interest in looking closely. And when I describe what I'm looking at, it helps me understand my way of seeing the world. And so the sense that I have about my relationship to photography, even though now I'm becoming more inclined towards making photos myself, um, at the outset, it was really just to be a writer who can use this as some kind of... um, Medium, some kind of portal into um, the kind of thinking that I wanted to do, or the kind of writing I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And as you probably know, it it wasn't necessarily restricted to just description. It wasn't simply illustration. Even it was more of um, evocation. The the sense that I could look at a photograph and, in placing it side by side with a text, um, it could reveal something um, completely different from either what the text can only say or what the photograph can only reveal.
0: That's really fascinating. And something you said really stood out to me, and that's the power of keen observation. And I noticed that in a stranger's pose, a lot of the time you put yourself in the role of the observer. Why is the idea of being a stranger or observer so important to you or so important to your writing practice?
1: For many reasons, um, the notion of the other um, is very important to me. The fact that we are not completely ourselves, except as being perceived by other people. Um, you know, no one person can um, completely define themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we sort of project our ideas of self, um, or we, we have our ideas of, of self projected on by other people. Um, so that was really the, one of the big things for me, that I was going into all these places and I knew that I wasn't simply who I taught myself to be. I was also going to be the person, a person who was being looked at. Um, and the other, the other thing, right, is that part of the central preoccupations for me while I was writing the book was what I called then the movement of the other. Right. And around the time that I was writing this book, right, this was when we had the peak of the migration, say what people call the migration crisis, right? You know, Mm. the the, the big um, wave of movement from parts of the African continent to, you know, Europe. Um, And I mean, humanity, the story of our civilization as humans is the story of migration, is the story of movement, but a time came when it became necessary or possible, both legally and um, even um, outside of the law, to designate people who arrived into new places as foreigners or as, you know, as people that could be criminalized. Um, and uh, um, so the idea of um, a stranger, the idea of an order, no longer was restricted to just curiosity it was then expanded into criminalization. And so when you have, when I started with the idea, I started with the idea that I could think through the notions of being a foreigner or a stranger in other places and ended up with the fact that it wasn't just as simple to be observed. One could also be criminalized if you didn't have the archetype of the normal person or of the resident or of the one who is recognizable. This is why, you know, just to answer that question directly, these are the two main reasons why why the, the, the notion of being a stranger or the idea of being a stranger um, remain poignant throughout um, the process of writing and thinking through my travels.
0: I didn't even realize that A Stranger's Pose and your process in writing that was happening at the same time as the migration crisis, because I think now that you've drawn those parallels I understand your point of view as a writer um, in that travel log a lot better, and I find it really fascinating how you say and rightfully so that we kind of the way we understand self has a lot to do with other and defining who the other is. Mm. And also kind of drawing or rather linking this with your work, exploring archives. I think something that's really interesting now that's emerged is the rise of a lot of colonial and pre-colonial era photographic archives on Instagram, Mm. often put together by young people like myself who find these images really fascinating and who look to these images as a way of kind of finding ourselves, finding our pre-colonial selves. However, these photographs were taken by Europeans and in essence these photographs were kind of securing us as other and an other through which Europeans could project their own project of racial supremacy onto. So with this being the case, do you think these archives are important in reconnecting young Africans who seek knowledge of their history to those histories and to their ethnic backgrounds
1: and ethnic groups? Yeah, there's so much to unpack in that question. I mean, the first thing to say as some kind of caveat is that, I mean, for me, the engagement with the archive is still unfolding. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I think I've really just done one major thing, which was this long essay um, using uh, photographs from the UK Colonial Archive and Flickr are sort of counterpoints for for the text that I then wrote, which um, we can talk about it at some point um, if we get to that. Um, but but I think you're asking a really important question, which really is, what can we do with the past? <laughs> um, you know, the the general framework with which we study the past, right, is history. And archives are really institutionalized, um, say, documents or um, even spaces where we can, Mm -hmm. you know, study history and therefore the past. Um, Now, of course, the idea of the past is both officious and personal. And in the personal sense of the past, uh, when we look at archival photographs, we are projecting our own subjectivities or our own sense of the past onto them. So if, for instance, I stumble on a photograph taken in um, the 1900s in in a small Igbo town where I'm from, I am not simply relating to it as a photograph that was taken by a colonial officer or by some kind of anthropologist. I'm relating to it as these are my people, mm-hmm. right? Um, even if the, the the expression on the face of the person that I'm looking at is one of um, discomforts, I am thinking, oh, I, I, I can look at this person and imagine what it meant to be in my town um, in the 1900s. And for me, the work that is then important is really um, foregrounding that that, that subjectivity. Um, because the archive is never guileless, it's never innocent, it's never without mm-hmm. its politics and its, its, its entra- entrapments and its failures and all the, the ways that we've sort of uh, problematized the archive. But our subjectivity, even though, of course, it's not, not free of prejudice, but it's at least um, an attempt to be honest. Mm-hmm. And when we are engaging with the archive, writing about it, writing stories in response to it, not necessarily um, simply presenting it as ease, but contextualizing it a little further, contextualizing the histories of violence and oppression that produced those archives, it makes it possible for us to, and that, that was my thinking and my own uh, interest, to reclaim something of our our personalities, our dignities um, from that historical moment. Now, the idea of reclamation or the idea of, it's not just blankets, right? I don't think that there is, I'm not looking for authenticity when I go back to the past. I'm not saying, oh, if I look at these photographs, okay. I know what it meant to be authentically Igbo or Yoruba or whatever ethnic group, because the idea of ethnicity was also invented around the time those photographs were being taken. Exactly. Right? Ethnicity as a concept or as a political concept was invented in order to continue the work of colonization. Right? So colonization, the principle behind at least the British in Nigeria, the principle was divide and rule. Right? How do you divide? You tell people you are different from each other. Mm-hmm. right? And make it possible. Of course, we were different from each other. There's no saying about that, but we could have followed different paths of, you know, working out our differences and not necessarily amalgamation, right? So for me, I think, and this is what's even most important to me when I, when I consider historical documents or archives and all that, is that I'm not looking at those, those documents thinking, if I look closely enough, I'll discover my authentic self, I am really looking at those documents for a jumping off point. It's really just data play mm. and what I then do with that data is what I am really curious about right um, I'm going to paraphrase um, a, a Tony Morrison quote but the idea is that you receive data and data you produces knowledge and then um, from that you 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 get wisdom mm. so I think that, we can't be stuck at the level of data. We can't be stuck at the level of, oh, look how we looked in the 1900s or the late 1800s. That is going to um, mar us in the same uh, ethnicization. I don't know how to frame that word. That same logic of ethnicity mm-hmm. that has really brought us to where we are, especially in Nigeria.
0: I love that you brought up that Toni Morrison quote, because I actually think that's something young people are doing today on digital spaces. On one hand, I'll look at a picture of a Yoruba woman, let's say, and then I guess on a very superficial level, I'm thinking, Oh, is this what I would have looked like in 18, I don't know, 1888 or whatever. Um, But then I find that young people today, we go deeper because then people start maybe not writing books that are published, but on Instagram and Twitter, they start sharing these think pieces that they're writing and thinking about how can these images teach us to undo these very Western-centric notions of respectability and beauty? And this is producing knowledge in a way because I have a younger sister who is 19 and the level of confidence she has Mm. and assurance she has in herself as a Black Nigerian woman in a British university, I definitely didn't have. And that's Mm. because she has these these new sources of knowledge online. Um, And I suppose that is sort of getting wisdom in a sense, and not to say that we're at the final stage, but it's, it's a process that's unfolding Mm. and something that often went hand in hand with these colonial photographs was um, travel Mm. and the role of um, colonial era um, ethnographies by anthropologists. And, I love a stranger's pose because I see what you're doing as sort of like an anti-colonial ethnography where you, you put yourself in the role of the observer, but it's enlightening the reader and it's not passing judgment on those you observe.
1: Mm.
0: How did you go about um, approaching travel writing about Africa as an African, Mm. considering how problematic travel writing about Africa often is?
1: for me the starting point was um the fact that i wasn't i it was observation as i said earlier it was really just how can i be in this moment and look closely um and i think that that came with initially traveling with photographers who were taking mostly documentary photographs really just taking um, snapshots um, from, you know, we're, we're driving on the road and you're just taking photographs from the the, the 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 window of the car or stopping at some point, or even the fact that we didn't really spend a lot of time in the places that we are traveling through. So what that produced for me was the need and the necessity to think in, in more immediate terms, right? And for me, that immediacy um, is, is in a sense what, I hope to achieve in the writing where I am looking very closely um, at where I am at the moment. Right. Mm. Um, so that's 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 one thing. Um, the fact that most African countries um, is has always been like this space where we, we seem to always need some kind of saving. Um, if it's not aid, it's a politician who would. You know, undo the terrible politics of the last forty years or whatever. You know, right? Bobby Wine, hasn't having to come around and save Uganda from Museveni and all that. Um, and 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 so my question while writing the book was: What does the unheroic look like? Um, what does the mundane and and the everyday? Um, and, and and just the, the sheer fact of leaving, what does it look like? Of course, I didn't want to make it into some kind of cheesy outtake of life in, in parts of the continent, mm-hmm. because I wasn't necessarily being apolitical. I was simply trying to reframe what politics can look like, um, that politics can take a, 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 the form of an unresolved moment. Mm-hmm right? The, the, the fact that politics can take the form of a slice of life. My response to an encounter, that's, that is also politics. Um, and, 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 and that was, of course, as you say, in direct contrast to the idea that you start a journey here and you um, sort of end up there having survived <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the madness of Africa. Um, you know, or like just the sheer hassle of being on the continent. Um, of course, when one thinks of writers who did, you know, did really, sometimes really good writing and beautiful writers like Kapuscinski or even um, Teru, um, Paul Teru writes, there's no question about the fact that, you know, these were serious writers trying to sort of satisfy um an interest in the exotic, in the foreign, um, in in crossing the the, the threshold of of themselves. But the question is, what does it mean for an African to do a similar journey without the um, privileges of being European? Mm -hmm. And how does that play out when you are even in some way privileged as well, you know, um, because I could... Um, whether with an organization or by myself afford these trips. Mm. So all of those questions came to bear on the fact that what could be highlighted was the fact that I am a Nigerian person who is trying to look at the continent or look at um, towns and cities in the continent from an unheroic stance, from the sheer fact of being where I was.
0: And, Do you see this process that you went through um, to come to this conclusion and also just documenting the mundane, as you said, do you see that as a necessary step in the process towards decolonization? And I mean, I know decolonization is a massive movement, a massive concept, but I think I can narrow it down to say decolonization of, of travel writing, of travel, mm. of understandings and ideas of self and other within Africa?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the, um, the process of decolonization must take at least the same amount of time that the process of colonization took, at the very least. Mm-hmm. I think it would be a mistake for our generation to think that decolonization as an organizing principle was um, left to the first decade of, um, the, the uh, of, of independence. So that said, um, I completely agree that attempt to use or the paradigm by which you know one can or that I approached um, writing about travel was an attempt at decolonization. It was an attempt at decolonization precisely because I was was conscious of colonial narratives. And trying to walk against it, right? Or walk in a different mode. And one of those simple things was even the form the writing took, deciding to write in a fragmented style mm-hmm. instead of a linear style, right? Um, because to write in a linear style was to present like the background of the story, right? This is who I am. This is how I can travel. This is why I can travel. This is why I'm traveling. And all of that. This is the sequence with which I traveled and all that. But I felt, uh, not, necessarily, um, always, not necessarily always the case, but for the purpose of those, that book, I felt that my attempt at decolonization would be to say, let's, let's fragment this narrative. Let's say I am not moving in a linear fashion. I am not, this is not a journey of discovery. This is not a journey, especially of physical discovery, mm. quote unquote. as it was mostly for people traveling in the pre-colonial and colonial era from Europe, that for them, they had to conquer the obstacle of the native, so to speak, in order to get to whatever they were discovering. But I was saying to myself that in order to decolonize my thinking about travel writing, I had to shirk the idea of of discovery as an organizing um, principle.
0: I really love that you've said that discovery because that's the key. That's the key thing. <laughs> so, lots of the travel writing in, and not just colonial, pre-colonial. I'd say European writings of other. It's this idea of discovery, oh. not just discovering where the native lives, but also discovering the ways of the native and discovering how the native sees the world and understands self in the world um, and also understands the European as well. But touching on this topic of decolonization, while I was at university and even now decolonization and decolonizing the curriculum is something that students from, I don't want to call it Commonwealth, but students from countries that were previously colonized campaign about time and time again. Mm. And considering that now a lot of young people are getting their education on their histories on platforms like Instagram and Twitter, because academic spaces have been so slow to produce this this knowledge en masse, what do you think is the role of the Nigerian intellectual writer, artist in this process?
1: That's a (laughs) very... involved question um, i mean the <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the 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 first assumption is that what's available in non-academic spaces or academic type spaces or what academics are doing on mainstream platforms um we have to assume that they are um valuable mm-hmm. right that they they can serve the purpose of education, information, and, um, and even illumination. And so I'm working with that assumption. I can speak for myself in terms of, um, of, of role. I'm interested in, in working in a rigorous manner, but not necessarily giving up the need for um, lucidity and clarity. Um, and personableness, if you would even call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, how can a piece of writing show extensive research and and yet not give give up the need for um, lucidity? How do you uh, bring together a good number of sources in your writing, like a range of sources in your thinking, and and still show some consideration for the reader? Mm-hmm if you get what I mean. So I, I really think that the role of anyone who is fortunate enough or even, <laughs> well, I'm not saying unfortunate enough, but <laughs> anyone who is fortunate enough to take up this task of um, of thinking through historical phenomena or cultural phenomena, or it, it, the, the the role is really regal. Um, do your homework and present it in a manner that. People who have not had the opportunity to be as versed as you are Mm -hmm. can also be. um, They they can have some kind of illumination presented to them. Mm -hmm. And um, I really, I really try to, in my thinking, crystallize what are the central concerns of my generation. Mm What is the central concern of this moment in Nigeria? If you are um, between the age of eighteen and thirty-five, you know, or however i want to you know think about what generation we are or the moments we are this uh, especially in terms of generation or let's say if you came of age just after after military dictatorship in nigeria what are the central concerns of this time mm-hmm. obviously we do not we are not readily attached to the military past but we've also not received, um, as they say in political circles, the dividends of democracy. Mm-hmm. So we are this, um, this generation sort of caught between a state that was at the brink of, or that was already fascist in a sense, or mm-hmm. um, let me say fascist, but you know what I mean, dictatorial. It was ruled by a dictator. Mm-hmm. And um, a country that has succeeded actually, And not falling back into a military dictatorship. But what does that mean for us? And I think that that's one of the central questions that our generation is attempting to answer. What does it mean for us to demand for good governance? What does it mean for us to be citizens, actually? even before we demand for good governance? What does it mean for us to be citizens? Mm-hmm. And um, and I hope you excuse me, I'm just sort of going off on a reef, but uh, on a tangent rather. Um, oh, no, please do. <laughs> I'm but, loving this. Um, but but the, 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 the part of what it, it would mean for us to be citizens is to ask the question of how am I going to dismantle ethnocentrism? Right, Mm -hmm. the prevailing logic of um, Nigeria's um, constitution, or like its the 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 way in which we've constituted ourselves, um, is really around the notion of ethnicity, Mm -hmm. one way or the other. Right, they tell you of major and minor tribes and all that um, that problematic um, framings. So the question for our generation is, how can I look at a Fulani person or think about a Fulani person and not immediately say, you are doing this because you are Fulani, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Or how can I look at um, an evil person or an ethnic person or whatever and not reduce that person to an archetype? Mm -hmm. I think that until we figure that out, we cannot really figure out what it means for us to walk again or decolonize, to use that word. That's really the central question for any intellectual um, thinking about how Nigeria, quote-unquote, can work. I don't even know if I answered your question, so if I didn't, please ask I mean, you me. did, but <laughs> also...
0: <laughs> no, but also brought some really interesting talking points as well. And something that I found was really interesting is this idea of thinking through what it means to be a citizen. Um, I once went to a talk where a historian was talking to a woman who was really prominent during the South African, I suppose, um, struggle for liberation. And she was saying how a lot of what she's thinking about now is, okay, we're no longer subjects of a colonial, or rather not colonial, sorry, of an apartheid state. We are now citizens of this democratic state, but what exactly does that mean? How does that change the way we think about ourselves as Black people? Mm. And I honestly feel that the government, people in power, the political class, know that it is overcoming this This obsession with ethnic difference, know that that is something that's really important and of central importance. And I honestly feel that that is why even with the NSARS movement, a lot of politicians kept throwing out really silly things about ethnic difference and, you know, like Southerners trying to overthrow through a northern government, even if as citizens we shouldn't be thinking that way. Mm. And they throw out these these accusations just in order to muddy the waters so it doesn't become so clear-cut who we're fighting against anymore. Mm. Also, I'll link this to a really interesting essay you wrote, The Colonizer's Archive, is a crooked finger. Mm. And you write that time is not unilinear Mm. because on one hand, time borders on the colonial experience, but also on the uncertainty of an independent state. And I really feel like that came to fruition during the NSARS movement. And it was really interesting to see a lots of people doing their research and talking about the colonial origins of policing in Nigeria, going further to talk about mm. military dictatorships and the role of the police and the army then. Yeah. And something that is missing is this kind of intergenerational conversation, Absolutely. because like you said, I'm of the generation that came of age after military dictatorship. So I vaguely know Buhari was in power, but I don't, I don't really know the details of that. Mm-hmm. So this is totally off script, but do you place a lot of importance on intergenerational conversation? Because that is something I think is really, really missing.
1: And that's, uh, I mean, of course I do. Um, um, I'm, I'm very committed to the idea that we stand, um, I think this is a Berger, John Berger quote, that we stand um, shoulder to shoulder with the dead. And in the, the way I also think about it is that, you know, the dead are living and the unborn um, stand um, side by side right? And um, it's also the idea, um, I think it's it's from, and also I I keep paraphrasing all these quotes, I have Lois somewhere in my mind, but (laughs) there's there's also a quote by Amiri Baraka, you know, um, where he said that, I mean, essentially doing something in order that the future is not born as a corpse, um, born, stillborn. And, And so all of those ideas inform, for me, a deep, interest to engage with Nigeria's history and, and not simply in what has been sanitized, right. Mm-hmm. Um, and presented to us as um, unproblematic, you know, it's like who killed Bola I don't know why I just remembered that. Who killed Bola <laughs> you know, the people who were tried in court, their names still come up in um, news bulletins all the time as still prominent figures. Mm-hmm. We have not forgotten. You know, we can't forget. We can't forget that Ige's wife died as a result of her husband's death. Um, I can, we can talk about so many moments in Nigeria's history because I think that Nigeria has a particular um, obsession with, um, you know... This all these kinds of numinous um, or problematic flashpoints—you mm-hmm. know—something will just happen, as you said, brings together the anxiety about the future and the past to ahead, and so yes, um, I, I don't want to stray too much from your question. I do believe very strongly that as much as it's within our capacity as um, as intellectuals, as people who are curious about um, where this country is headed, where the idea of Nigeria is headed, we have to be very willing to ask questions of the previous generations. Mm -hmm. We cannot, for instance, take everything Obasan just says in his books and memoirs as facts. Mm -hmm. Three points. I, I, I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to go further. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we have to, we have to read um, um, multiple accounts of those moments, of, say, the Civil War. Mm-hmm. We cannot accept that everyone who is talked about as a hero today during the war was, in fact, a hero. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily that they didn't do heroic things, but the question remains can we get more information about the involvement of this and that person? And how can that help us understand what that moment was? And and you know, also help us figure out what our own moments, say, you know, the pro what 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 those are now as well?
0: That gives me a lot to think about, actually, especially as a person who studied history, thinking about focusing on on numerous accounts, because I think and with Nigerian history, like you said, there's so many flashpoints. It's honestly exhausting. So many flashpoints, so many different names thrown around. And then while you're trying to just understand or rather put together a narrative of a series of events, there are all kinds of other factors that you then have to start accounting for. For example, this ever looming factor of, of, um, ethnicity, mm. um, and the focus of a uh, focus rather on ethnicity and of course a question or rather a topic I'm tired of hearing about and discussing, but this whole idea of whether or not Nigeria is a legitimate uh. state, nation state because of amalgamation. And we are British, British, um, what's the word? British invention. I'm so, so tired of that conversation. And again, this is just me going off on a tangent because I often feel like that conversation starts again in order to suppress actual interesting conversations that are going on, just to say, actually, what's the point of it all? And it's like, okay, is your solution that every single ethnic group break apart Mm. or is your solution majority... I suppose, majority dictatorship mm-hmm. or, or, or rule. Do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. such an annoying question.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the, the thing is, the, there's the idea that you can't escape what you have been named, mm-hmm. which is sort of summarize what you're saying about, you know, questions of, you know, how do we escape the fact that the word from which Nigeria derives its name was a derogatory word. Mm-hmm. What is even interesting to me is actually that Nigeria, uh, once we, we attained self-rule or even in the years leading to that, the question was never seriously um, posed as to changing our name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Several other African countries attempted or did that, did just that, you know, from Ghana to um, Ivory Coast. I mean, you, you, you know all of that, right? But in Nigeria, we never really had that conversation. We sort of yeah, you know, just moved on. I guess because it would have been a nightmarish situation for mm-hmm. all the interest groups to arrive at a common um, um, non-referential name. You know, a name that was as as innocuous as um, as as Biafra mm-hmm. <laughs> or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Even Biafra was not innocuous, but that's a different conversation. So. You, you i mean my my point really is that the only way those conversations around naming around um what does this nation mean or what does our identity as nigerian mean would be useful for us is if it really helps us dislodge again the uh, the logic of ethnocentrism mm. You know all of the arguments around um, yeah. ethnicity goes on in Nigeria. For me, all good and all fine if we want to have the conversation about name and about what does the Nigerian, collective Nigerian identity mean, as long as it will make us more tolerant of each other.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just had, like, the funniest image in my mind. I imagined, like... Obafemi Awalawa, Tafawa Balawa, Namdi Azikwe, all of them, like in front of a whiteboard, like, hmm, if not Nigeria, Mm -hmm. okay, let's brainstorm, guys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, renaming a country is tough. So like you said, I don't blame them for being like, you know what? Like, it's not that bad. We're used to it now. Let's just run with Nigeria. Yeah.
1: Yeah, let's move on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: I like to make the final few questions more advice-based, um, for young writers. And, um, my first question is a lot of young people want to write for international art publications, but struggle to pitch their work and get featured in these publications. What advice do you have for young African art writers?
1: I mean, I'm, uh, just the idea, or the the fact that you can, we can call, <laughs> we can we can use the term African art writers is um, a real pleasure for me. Um, mainly because it's not necessarily a field. I guess people we don't have a lot of people who are interested in art writing um, as as you know as a form of literature. Mm. I I think that that's good. Uh, but you know, really. Giving an advice is very in some ways problematic because um, no part is similar and it's uh, it's it's a combination of things for for people um, I think that the standard advice always is to keep writing and to remain committed to having conversations outside of you know your own self right outside of what you are you have to get published, right? So you are constantly thinking, how can my work be showcased? Mm. Um, and so if there is a magazine, for instance, that allows for unsolicited submissions, take that leap, you know, send a, a cold peach, as they say, and say, I have this idea to write about this show or this, this art book or this artist. This is the work I've done, even if it's a link to your blog or whatever, you know. Put it there and just keep pitching until um, editors begin to take you seriously. I can't, for instance, talk about my own career in a. You have to do what I did because I was actually fairly. Um, I mean, I, things happened that I didn't necessarily always see the connection between what I did and what happened. Right. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so, uh, but what was consistent was that one, I kept writing or I keep writing and, um, I'm, I'm willing to take opportunities when they come my way. So if, if, if an editor sends you an email or if you meet an editor who says, you know, uh, yeah, my magazine publishes, I'll be interested in seeing if you have a pitch by all means take that offer. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's by your consistency and by, the amount of your work that is showcased, that you would be able to really um, get increased attention.
0: And lastly, in your opinion and experience, is professional training in art writing, art history, etc., essential in elevating your analysis and quality of writing? And I ask this because for many young Nigerians, a postgraduate education is simply too expensive.
1: Well, you know, I, I... I like to think that what makes professional training necessary is the level of commitment um, one gives during the process of study, right? So if you can manage to develop a regimen of study, networking, and curiosity, you can become educated in your field. And again, the, the, the journey is different for so many people. There are people who are called self-taught or who practice until the point of specialization. And what specialization really means is that you've done the same thing for so long that you sort of have, <laughs> you understand the language of, of the field, right? That's what generally that means. So I, I, I wouldn't necessarily put it on anyone to say you have to get educated in a fancy university with an MFA, or else you can't do serious work as a writer, whether you are trying to be a novelist or poet or, or, or write um, art journalism or you know, art writing. I, I think that that would be too facetious of me to, to, to propose. But what I will propose is that one is dedicated to a, um, to a certain high level of commitment in studying right and really trying to know as much as possible about the field that you are interested in and things open up as a result I believe.
0: I love that you've you've framed studying and postgraduate study as um, a question of dedication and dedication to study because I think when you put it that way it's not as it doesn't become something that's so closed off and elusive for so many, because like you said, if you can develop that discipline on your own, I mean, it's difficult, but you can kind of reach that professional level. So mm. thank you so much for that. Okay, yeah. So the next section is the rapid fire questions. So it's it's just really silly. Um, I just want the listeners to get a better I don't know a better idea of you outside all these things we've been talking about. So I'll give uh-huh. you two options, and uh-huh. yeah, you choose one. So okay, my first question
1: is poetry or prose. Um, I'll say prose because that's just the fact. Like I, I don't read as much poetry as I should. Actually,
0: same, same. Art or literature? This is a hard one.
1: <laughs> Um I mean literature is also art so I'll say art.
0: <laughs> I mean that's a good way to get around the question.
1: <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely. <laughs>
0: Long form writing or short and concise?
1: Long form any day.
0: Travel by road or by air?
1: By road. City or village? Ah uh, no um huh. I mean, I I don't even think there's any city, any village that doesn't have aspirations to be a city at this point. So (laughs) I'll say say city.
0: Fair enough. (laughs) The desert or tropics?
1: Uh, Tropics.
0: Tutuola or Achebe.
1: No, nah, that's bad. <laughs> uh, no, nah, I, I can't. I can't. I can't. In all honesty, answer. I, I'll, I'll take a chibit. I, I think it's easy for me. I'll take a chibit. Yeah, that's the, yeah. I can. I can give you my whole spiel of uh, Tutola, which is, which is just too long. But I'll take a chibit. In print or online? Um, in print. Mm. Tea or coffee? Oh, coffee. Any day I can drink. So I drink too so much coffee. <laughs> Digital or analog? um what does that mean digital words and or analog words
0: i suppose photography photography um, writing you know yeah. laptop or typewriter digital camera oh, or oh, manual yeah. camera
1: no digital I, I mean i don't have any experience with any of that or those older technologies so i can't even compare <laughs> So,
0: <laughs> film or photography film pre-colonial or post-colonial
1: narratives um post-colonial
0: lagos or new york (laughs)
1: lagos actually lagos (laughs) that's hard that's that's not entirely (laughs) true, but i'll stick with lagos yeah
0: iphone or camera camera lastly memoir or fiction
1: oh i'll say fiction yeah Uh, that's easy
0: same (laughs) um so yeah in this final section of the podcast, I like to ask guests the three texts that have shaped the way you think. Mm. And I say texts because it doesn't really have to be a book or a novel. It can be, I mean, someone has talked about a song. It can be a poem. It can be a quote. So yes, the three texts.
1: Well, that, that uh, I'm not going to answer it. Like um, three texts that are shaped the way I think, because I, I would be insincere. So I am um, choosing instead to say that in the last five years, especially in relation to how I approach writing, um, I mean, writing in relation to history, mm-hmm. th- there, are, there are about four texts that um, I, I sort of think about a line from, from them or lines from them from time to time. And the first is um, showing us Death and the King's Horseman. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and the idea for me that has always been helpful, um, is actually from a quote where he says, memory is master of death, the chink in its armor of conceit. Um, and, and I really think that it's masterful or has been helpful for me in clarifying that what we often frame as the clash between tradition and modernity um or what we often frame as distinct when, when it comes to relating to modernity in relation to tradition is not it's a little bit more complex than, than that. Mm. So that's one. Um, then there's a book by Anne Michael's called Fugitive Pieces. And um the book opens with a sentence that I always think about time is a blind guide. Um and um it's really just the the, the fact that it's even actually related to um, another a quote from a different book, but um, a book by uh, this this new writer called Bruno Schulz, where where he, he asks the question that could it be that time is too narrow for all events, um, and um, so I think about you know time in terms of temporality and our idea of linear time not being sufficient to actually. Guide us in terms of all that there is in in in, in human consciousness, and so Fugitive Pieces um, by Anne Michaels would would be the text that helped me do that. It's a book about you know the Holocaust and and, and World War II and all that. Um, more recently, I read this really incredible novel by this late um, Canadian writer um, Alice Macleod, and it's called No Great Mischief. And he's really just writing, it's a character who is telling, it's almost like a memoir, but of his fictions, telling the story of his family across um, um, centuries um, and what has been passed down. So this family moved from, I think, um, Australia to Canada. And so all the stories of migration, of war, of, um, of tragedy, and all that comes to head. Um, and, um, I mean, it's just a masterful novel. And I, I sort of think about just the construction of the the plots. Um, and I don't want to give anything away if anyone is interested in it. And finally, I'm a big, big, um, um, you know, um, well, not fan, really, but I'm a big student of um, the late um philosopher, Edward Glissant. Mm. And uh, part of, I mean, I go into this, fanboy mode in a stranger's pose at some point uh, it's this very i mean the big the the most the big book by clisson is poetics of relation where he writes for instance our boats are open and we sail them for everyone and i mean you know the idea of op- opacity and how everyone has the right to opacity right the right not to explain everything mm-hmm. which is helpful for us <laughs> which mm-hmm. you know gives us you know, we, we shouldn't explain everything. But but also, you know, it's really the story that I tell in um, A Stranger's Pose. Actually, do you mind if I read it? Of course, of course, please read. I like reading that passage because it's really one of the most important passages for me in the book. So here goes. One, one day at dinner, while Mantia Diawara was making One word in Relation, his film on Edward Glissant, the filmmaker turned to the philosopher and asked, how can I simplify your ideas for a wider audience? Glisson looked at him and smiled. If I were you, I would wait until we were in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, then point the camera at the mass of water. It's abyssal expanse, and that would be the whole film in one shot. The ocean is the world without partition and division, only depth and expanse, Because of its depth, it serves as a burial place. So if you point the camera at a mass of water, you get an opaque representation of gods and languages and objects and songs, everything thrown in with bodies from the West African coast. The opacity of the sea is therefore its rich, dangerous promise. Some will drown and some will reach harbour.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you so, so much. And thank you for being on this episode today. To find out more about Emmanuel's work, visit his website, mriduma.com. That's M-R-I-D-U-M-A.com and follow him on Instagram at Ema You can find me on Instagram where I'll be reading and reviewing books at myowa underscore reads. Thank you for listening.